Hello and welcome to the Spectators Book Club podcast. This week, my guest is Alan Mallinson, the author of a new book called The Shape of Battle, Six Campaigns from Hastings to Helmand. Alan, welcome. Can I start just by asking you, I'm intrigued by the title. You call it The Shape of Battle. Why is that spatial metaphor in there? Well, I'm going to have to own up to, you know, having been influenced greatly in my um, historical learning by John Keegan, the late, great Sir John Keegan, who wrote a seminal work called The Face of Battle. And the approach he took was to look at three representative battles, Agincourt, Waterloo and the Somme, to try to put over to a reading public that then didn't have a lot of access to soldiers' accounts of what the actual face of battle looked like, what it was like to be on the battlefield fighting in those particular engagements. And it was an innovative book in that, as I say, the concentration previously in history books, military history books, had been on the higher level. And John took the approach of the from the ground up, as it were. Now, I thought in a way, since that book was, was published in the early 70s, that, that the pendulum had swung wholly in the opposite direction. And, and what you tended to get now were books which were not obsessed, but their, their focus was very much on what it was like to be in the middle of, of a particular battle. And I just thought it was time, and it's something I'd wanted to do for ages, to to go back and look at things from the higher level, to try to to pick out what what there was in the enduring nature of war, as opposed to the differing character of war, and well, to see where this this went. And so I, I decided on taking three campaigns, three battles actually within campaigns to to examine this idea of continuity. That thing of the ground-up, top-down thing, it's a very pertinent quote you include from, I think it's the Duke of Wellington, isn't it, saying you might as well try and write the history of a battle as write the history of a ball. Might as well what write the that? history of a ball as write the history of a battle, he oh, says. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 no matter. It, well, he's right, of course, in, in his time, because, um, first of all, nobody had calibrated their, their wristwatches, which, which you can do nowadays. So there was that problem of, the, of, of sequence, and the Duke really did feel this very strongly, that no-one really could, could piece it together in the way that the particular historian who had approached him, saying, I want to write the history of the Battle of Waterloo, was proposing. Well, things have moved on, and, of course, the, the availability of technology greatly helps, and, and, and records and, and the whole approach to as it were, the, the archaeology of, of, of battles makes it, well, I would say rather less of a challenge than, than the Duke thought it, it was in his day. Yes, now you say you started with three battles. You ended up with six. What, what made you choose the battles that you did? And for the, for the listeners who haven't read your book, what are they? Well, we start with the Battle of Hastings, which um, everybody knows the date, well, the year at least, and knows roughly what happened at the battle. But they don't all know what the strategic context was of the battle, and it is a fascinating strategic context. And and it's one 
you know, it would be terribly easy to, to get the idea that Duke William came over in overwhelming numbers, confronted the rather pathetic English on a hill in Sussex and, and trounced them. It was far from that. It was, you know, Waterloo was a near-run thing. I argue that Hastings was near a run, and, and really Harold should not have lost the battle had he taken a campaigning view of the problem facing him rather than something which was felt to be almost a, a personal trial by ordeal with William. So Hastings had the possibility of revealing all sorts of things that hitherto perhaps hadn't been considered. And, you know, you got the whole thing. You got the political dimension, the grand strategy, the military strategy, and then the tactics of the battle, which were, which were actually pretty uh, unsophisticated. And then I went on to the Battle of Towton. I think most people had heard of Towton. 1461, Palm Sunday, fought just uh, southwest of York, the bloodiest battle in, in English history. 28,000 men killed, which if you adjust for the population then and now would give a total of today something like 380,000 men killed on the battlefield. A very complicated political and strategic context, the, the Wars of the Roses, and a battle in the end that should have gone one way, the Lancastrians should have won it, but it went another because of the, the personal leadership of the man who became Edward IV on the Yorkist side, really demonstrating the fact that in the end, wars and battles come down to a contest of, of wills. Waterloo is the next one. You, you can't really, I don't think, study any military history without reference to Waterloo. Waterloo is the most written about battle in, um, in the English language, I think. But it's, it's rarely considered in the, in the longer context of the Peninsular War and how Wellington really won his spurs in the peninsula and then transferred everything that he'd learned in the Peninsula War to that great battle, the decisive battle for Europe, arguably. So that's, that's Waterloo. I then skipped the First World War for a number of reasons that I, that I won't go into, but I wanted then to concentrate on the Battle of D-Day, and D-Day you know, part of Operation Overlord, the Normandy landings, the, the beginning of the um, Western Allies pushback in 1944. D-Day itself was a separate battle, and it's very often forgotten that had, had we failed to get a secure landing on that single day, the 6th of June, famously referred to as the longest day, then history would have been very different. And so I wanted to as it were, focus on the day itself and focus on one area of the day itself, which was Sword Beach, which was the easternmost of the Allied landing beaches, in particular for the 3rd Infantry Division, and to trace the shaping of that 3rd Division's battle right back, a sort of strategic audit chain from right back from 1940, the glimmer in Churchill's eye of the fight back that eventually must come, and, and the way over 1941, 1942, 1943, this is the longest planned battle in history. And as I say, it, it's really an audit of the decision-making process, 
which is endlessly fascinating in my view. The penultimate one is a battle that possibly not many people have heard of. I confess to being in that, in that cramp. <laughs> Imjin River. Famous perhaps for the lovely um, alliteration of the glorious Gloucesters, the Gloucestershire Regiment, who, who really distinguished themselves in, in that battle on a river on the border between, more or less on the border of what is now North and South Korea and was then North and South Korea, a battle fought against overwhelming odds, some 30,000 regular Chinese infantry attacking a British brigade of of around 4,000, a battle fought over a period of three days, but the background to it, the whole of the, the historical strategic background to the Korean peninsula and how this battle arose from a, from a war that is almost inexplicable and how it got to be how it was. is um, it, It's almost medieval. And yet, of course, it, it was a war in which there were nuclear threats made and, and a very real possibility of, uh, of nuclear weapons being used. And then finally, to bring it up to date... And with a sort of perfect alliteration again, Hastings to Helmand, <laughs> which I have to say is, is irresistible in a way. But Operation Panther's Claw, a protracted operation which could be described as a battle loosely in Helmand in the summer heat of 2009, a bruising affair, long planned with an enormous political element and the the way the political imperatives and interference shaped the decision-making process, I thought it was was one to explore. It happens to be one that my own regiment, the Light Dragoons, took a major part in. And so, you know, I had an interest in this, although I long left the army. But obviously I knew a lot about the, you know, what it felt like to to be there. But Helmand is perhaps, we've got open wounds in the British Army, I say we, we've got open wounds in the British Army about um, Afghanistan and and Iraq too. It's possibly a little bit early to be um, scratching around roughly with them, but um, as a first stab at trying to put that battle into context, I think it stands, although I expect you know, as as the years go on and the names of people involved aren't quite so, well, you know, up front now. Perhaps more will emerge. I'll say no more than that. Well, as, I mean, as you, you sort of give us that survey of the, the battles you've chosen, you know, something even from that that emerges, it seems to be a huge theme of your book, is that what happens on a battlefield is kind of overcoloured by politics and by the larger campaign. And you... you say, which is a very long identification, there are kind of three levels of warfare, the strategic, the operational, and then the tactical. How are they, you know, understood? Well, the strategical is really rather simple. You know, there, there is the grand strategic, which is the notion of, of how the nation organises its, its wealth and resources for its political ends. And then there, there is, if you like, the military strategic, which is how you deploy your military means, that is men, equipment, supplies and, and what have you, to achieve those strategic political ends. That's, you know, to, to work out your strategy is the first requirement. And that, that's relatively straightforward. And then just to jump down 
to the tactical end. The, the tactical end is about fighting battles, how you deploy the resources in battle. But it's the bit in the middle that's the slight problem area. And no one really can, can say definitively, in my view, where the strategic ends, the strategic line is drawn, and where the top end of the tactical line is drawn. There is a, a grey area, the campaign planning area. And it is the job of the, the campaign commander to manage the strategic pressures, many of which will be very political indeed, and the tactical realities. And, and you saw that in the Second World War with, with Eisenhower and Montgomery, who were the, the operational level commanders for D-Day, Operation Overlord, and how they managed the tactical problems of, for example you know, getting men ashore on a rising tide on, on heavily defended beaches in Normandy, how they managed that on the one hand, and the political pressure of opening this offensive and not failing. Not failing was desperately important because of the relationships with Stalin and what, whatever. And um, how they managed it, again, is, is a wonderful story. I would say, parenthetically speaking, wonderful stories in your account of D-Day, there's this sort of one kind of mad scientist character, Hobart, who's Hobart's funnies. Can you t- tell us a bit about these, the the methods that they overcame? this real ingenuity in, in getting those men ashore, wasn't there? Well, if, gosh, if we had an hour or so to talk about um, <laughs> Hobart or Hubbard, as he was... Um, Hubbard, uh, sorry. Uh, no. as it, Percy Hubbard, a rather eccentric... He'd originally been a Royal Engineer, as I recall, and, and had then joined the Royal Tank Regiment during, um, you know, the interwar heyday when all the, all the people of limited means but, um, you know, technical proclivities would join the Royal Tank Regiment. And Hubbard, you know, was a Major General in the late 1930s and given, given command, really, of the, the only armoured force that we could call an armoured force, but um, he had the ability to fall out with almost everybody and was, was removed from command really before the, before the actual fighting started in, in 1940. And he promptly went off in a, in a half. He was pensioned off, basically, and went off in a half, I think, back to Gloucestershire and formed the local Home Guard platoon. But to cut the story as short as I can, Churchill, of course, had, had a had an eye for people like this. They excited his imagination, didn't they? Churchill, I think, always instinctively thought that the system was hiding people. He, he didn't have that high a regard for, for senior military officers, right from the days when he was a very junior military officer. And he asked for, for Hubbard to be brought back to examine the, um, the technical possibilities to overcome the known defences of the beaches in, um, in Normandy. And Hubbard was given command of the 79th Armoured Division, which was an experimental division. And really, it was a way of adapting tanks to deal with specific problems, such as soft sand. How do you get vehicles across soft sand? Well, you put a, a sort of rolled-up metal carpet on the front of a, of a tank hull, and you unroll it across the soft sand and the tank drives over it and everything else behind it drives over it. So, you know, that was one of Herbert's funnies. You only had tanks climbing over tanks. That was the one. You had, you had the tanks climbing over tanks through ditches. The most dramatic one was the idea of swimming tanks. 
That wasn't Hubbard's idea. That was a Hungarian engineer who came up with the principle of if you put a rubber flotation screen around a 40-ton tank, it would float. And famously demonstrated the principle to to Churchill by um, filling a tin bathtub full of water, taking a canvas bucket, putting a brick in it, and putting the canvas bucket in the water tub. And to Churchill's astonishment, it didn't sink. He said, it's exactly the same principle with tanks. We can fit on these screens and they will swim ashore. And by God, they did. And it just so happens, and it would, wouldn't it, (laughs) that my own regiment, the one that I I had the privilege to command, the 13th, 18th Royal Azars, before they were amalgamated to become the, the Light Dragoons, they were the regiment who were equipped with these swimming tanks, duplex drives, they were called, Sherman tanks. They were the ones who spearheaded the landings on Sword Beach. They were launched 5,000 yards out into the, uh, the English Channel, and they chugged ashore at a steady 100 yards a minute for an hour and 10 minutes, landed just before the infantry, and were able to provide enough suppressing fire to keep the the assaulting infantry's casualties at a manageable level. Yes, we were terribly innovative for D-Day. Now, to a lot of kind of civilians or laymen, you know, they'll think war or military history is a kind of niche area of interest and that, you know, it's it's, it's obviously hugely important in history and in political history, but all the, the stuff that happens on the ground... You know, it's maybe for people who who are kind of, you know, particular enthusiasts. But you make the case very early on. You say that we need to understand war because you say it's the most complex area of human interaction at all. Can you expand on that? I'm very intrigued by what, what you mean by that. Well, the idea, if not the exact words, are those of the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in, in Washington, General Mark Milley. And I heard him say this at a conference some years ago when he was head of the United States Army, at which he also said, incidentally, which um, really intrigued me, that the United States Army grew out of the British Army. It was an extraordinary acknowledgement of antecedents, the first time I think I'd ever heard it. And he made a very cogent historical case for that too. But, But he did say this, that, you know, it is the most complex human interaction in history. And I, I thought about that afterwards because, you know, uh, so absolute a claim does need... A, the answer is, can you think of a more complex one? Now, you know, I know novelists would write about love and, and everything else, but I think there are more factors involved in, in war, and we, we've been over some of them as we've been talking. The political dimension the strictly military dimension of what weapons you've got available to fight, the human dimension of, you know, are are the men willing to fight? Have they got the spirit? Have they got the confidence? Do the leaders possess the the will to, to carry it on? The uncertainty. Montgomery said the only certain thing in battle is the uncertainty. And I think the uncertainty aspect is one that is well it's there in every example that I um, cover in the book and I would venture to say it's in every example you could possibly think of the uncertainty complicates the interaction because you know a doesn't 
necessarily lead to B. There is friction involved, you know, Clausewitz's idea of, of friction, you know, the simplest thing is made difficult by the, the fog of war, the cloud of uncertainty. So there is that aspect, and of course the other aspect which is there always is fear. And fear does the strangest things to men. I've seen, I've seen fear make men who I thought would handle it fail miserably. And is I've this seen, in your own experience? Yeah, and I've seen the opposite too. I've seen fear actually, you know, when they've observed other men being fearful, it's surprisingly reinforced their own their own sense of, well, I'm not going to be frightened, I'm going to, I'm going to carry on. You know, if fear does strange things, it, it inspires and it also enervates. So those are the factors, I think, that, that go into what was Mark Milley's pronouncement, that this is the most complicated thing you can get involved in. This is an extraordinary story, speaking of fear, or, or the opposite of it. It's a character of Philip Curtis, not so well known, because he's in the Imjin River engagement. Tell me his story briefly, because it's a remarkable little vignette of soldierly courage. Well, Philip Curtis was was not actually a Gloucester. He was um, a light infantryman attached to the Gloucesters. And what happened in the Korean War was, um, very briefly, we sent a brigade almost straight away from Hong Kong to help the Americans. And then we, we sent another brigade when we could cobble it together and with, with actually Commonwealth members. So we had a Commonwealth division. And in order to reinforce the various units, a call was put out through the army for, you know, are there any officer volunteers? And, you know, young, enthusiastic officers who wanted to see a bit of action volunteered. And and Philip Curtis found himself with the Gloucesters and at one stage in the battle, and it was all fairly tight within the the battalion areas, the four battalions of the... uh, the brigade at Imjim, although the gaps between the battalions were were huge, ridiculously large. So the battalions fought, as it were, rather rather lonely battles, couldn't really see the battalions on either side. But in the Gloucesters area, one particular piece of high ground was lost. And the company commander and the battalion commander knew, knew darn well that if they didn't retake this ground, the position would be untenable. It was what technically is called vital ground. So a local company counterattack was organised, Philip Curtis leading with his platoon. He was killed in the process. But he was killed, in, you know, he wasn't just shot dead, he was, you know, he was shot down, but continued on in an almost 19th century boy's own story way of urging on his men and just not giving up until he, you know, the life left him. It, it is a truly heroic, in, in the old-fashioned sense, Victoria Cross. And um, I think what's most touching about that story is the story of how his men afterwards sort of very, very lovingly and admiringly removed his, his body in a sleeping bag and what have you. But that was the story of the Gloucesters. They fought like that. And they fought because, although he was an outsider, if it, you know, as it were, who'd come in, they fought because they knew each other. And there was a very strong sense of pride in, in family there, which, which kept them together when, when really all the odds suggested that, you know, they, they should have downed tools and, and run to the rear. Well, I mean, that's, that's one of the sort of central fascinations, I think, is this question of, you know, morale and... Esprit de corps and, you know, 
obviously in the face of, of the fear you describe, what is it that really centrally gives people courage and fighting spirit, do you think? I mean, you talk, I think, quote someone to the effect that you don't fight for an idea or an objective, really, but for fellowship. Is it sort of your relationship with the other people you're you're fighting with that makes for morale? Yes. Uh, you know, soldiers will say they fight for their mates. And really, the, the trick is to say, right, who are your mates? I've always thought that the strength of the British Army in particular, and others have a similar system, and, and others, well, manage in other ways, but... I've always thought the strength of the British Army was was to concentrate on on small unit cohesion, what's generally called a regimental system, whereby you know men serve a long time with each other and they they build up that trust and confidence in each other. Men are not posted in an, in and out willy nilly, and their commanders grow up with each other. And so, you know, over the years, trust and confidence is built. I wouldn't say fighting for your mates is enough. That should make men do what, you know, they need to do in a tight corner. But but to sustain morale, there's got to be confidence in the higher-level leadership and, and the battle plan. And that was, you know, to go back to the Second World War, that, that was Montgomery's really ace card, that he, he managed somehow to instill in the troops he commanded their absolute confidence in, in him. It was, you know, he almost did it with mirrors because, you know, when he took over 8th Army in North Africa, he couldn't really, you know, he wasn't coming from some great and glorious victory elsewhere. He, you know, he, he appeared from nowhere, as it were, not having seen action since 1940 at, at Dunkirk. But he, he knew exactly what had to be done. And one of the things was to exude confidence and to keep telling people, don't worry, you know, what you're facing, it's, it's not a big deal. You know, for D-Day, when everybody else had the jitters, Churchill included, who thought it was going to be a desperate failure, so did Alan Brooke, the chief of the general staff, thought it would be a failure. And Montgomery was going around saying to everyone, this is a perfectly normal operation of war. <laughs> well, remarkable. it is remarkable. And, of course, there were cynics around who were saying, oh, God, you know, listen, listen to this man. But, but enough people managed to believe that it was a perfectly normal operation of war to pull off this quite extraordinary event of filling the channel with ships, um, launching them in the aftermath of, a, of an enormous storm and putting them ashore on, on the beaches of Normandy. So I, I think confidence in, in, in the leadership and the plan and actually in the cause, I don't think, well, I can't speak for, for every nationality, of course, but I think that British troops and I would imagine American troops and, uh, and other Western allies, I'll put it like that, need to, need to feel confident in the cause. Dare I say it, I wonder if some of the poor, well, some of the examples of poor morale that appear to be emerging from the Russian army in Ukraine are evidence in a lack of fundamental belief in what they were doing. I have to say, at times, that was evident in Iraq during the invasion. There was the immediate fighting, the immediate job to be, to be got on with, but there were question marks as to whether this was quite right, and I think that had its consequences. But, you know, we're, we're still a bit too close to Iraq to be asking those questions and expecting to get a, an entirely honest answer. That's something for the future. Yeah. 
You have an intriguing line as well. I think you're, I can't remember who it is you're quoting, talking about the way in which courage works and physical and moral courage as think of them in terms of a bank account. I can't, of course, claim uh, authorship of that. And, and anyone listening who, who knows their history will know that that's from Field Marshal Bill Slim, Uncle Bill. Most people's idea of, of the finest battlefield general that the British Army had. I wouldn't dispute that, but I, I'm a strong believer that Montgomery was the, the finest general of the 20th century. And I you know, I'd be prepared to debate that with anyone. But anyway, Slim, Slim was beloved by his men. There was, there was something about him that people just warmed to him. In a, he had an avuncularity and a solidity about him. There was a certain amount of, of the showman there, but, but his showman was sort of showmanship of humility, if, if that's not entirely sort of oxymoronic. But I think he worked at his humility, if you know what I mean. But Slim likened courage, as you say, to the bank account, that um, moral courage, every time you exercise moral courage, it was like putting money into your deposit account. You built up your moral courage by exercising it. It was a bit easier to be a bastard the second time when you needed to be because you'd managed the first time and you'd seen it it worked and, and you'd seen it was necessary. On the other hand, physical courage, you know, most men having done something which scared them witless physically in battle, will be a little bit warier next time and the next time and the next time. And the the challenge for commanders is to judge when to take out a unit which has had a lot of fighting and to rest them and what they need to to restore their, their full fighting capability you know, if you went back to the First World War, which I don't in my book, but a lot of those attacks that were carried out in 1916 on the Somme and 17-2 were done by men who had never seen battle before. So they were, they were going to it entirely unaware. Had they been in a battle before that, you know, things might have gone differently. But no, they went in trustingly. And it's called the first courage. You know, the first courage is always, is always the best. The second time, people are warier. The third time, you know, are you know, big, begin to question. So um, yes, it's the the moral courage putting into the account, the physical courage drawing it out, and the judgment of when best to give people a rest. Now, ever since the First World War, really, in if you like the public culture, there's been a sort of orthodoxy that you know war is hell. Is there a sense, and in what sense is there that men ever enjoy? war or take pleasure I mean I know they take pride in it but I mean for a lot of history there was you know war was seen as glorious I mean what's your experience I mean you've seen active combat you've commanded men I just remember being very struck for instance by interviewing some I think the marine commanders who said that the ones who'd missed Optelic you know the, the Iraq war they were really cross about it you know, they wanted, they wanted to have been there. And I don't know whether that's because they'd have seen it's pleasurable or because they were just like, this is my job and I, I want to get the chance to do it properly. Ah, well, you know, you could go back to Henry V's speech before Agincourt. You know, all those people in bed in England will wish they'd, they'd been here, the Band of Brothers idea. I always say when this, you know, this sort of idea comes up, ask men who were in 1st Battalion Parachute Regiment, one para, who were in one para in 1982, what they felt about the Falklands 
one para weren't there, two para were, and three para were. And I think the term sick as dogs applies, and I, and I know many senior officers. I know plenty who weren't with two and three para, who were with one para, and felt rather haunted about it for the rest of their service. Yes, I mean, you know, this is our job. You want to be there. And if not, why not? But it's, I mean, are there people who actually enjoy the process, the process of fighting? Now, this is a tricky area, isn't it? The other day, there was a, an article in the Times written by Ben McIntyre, my old friend Ben McIntyre, about the SAS and the accusations of gratuitous killing in Afghanistan. And he started by referring to a famous incident in the Second World War in the early days of the SAS when a man called Paddy Main, one of the great foundation officers of the SAS, killed 30 or so pilots well behind the lines, having blown up all their aircraft on the airfield. He and a couple of others went to their mess building, caught them unawares, and to cut the story short, stood side by side, firing with their Sten guns until that was it, then chucked in a couple of grenades and ran away. Now, Ben McIntyre called that murder. Now, I wouldn't. The issue is complicated by the fact that Paddy Main appeared to get great pleasure from the act of killing. Whether that was pleasure or professional satisfaction, you know, there's a fine line to, to be drawn, and it was all a long time ago. It was never properly documented, and it's an area of contention both in the SAS and, and wider. There are men who clearly enjoy the thrill of combat. And um, let me go back to, to Churchill again and remind you of what, what he said, I think, after the, um, one of the campaigns he was involved in on the, on the northwest frontier in the, in the 1890s when he came under fire. And he said something, there is nothing more, more thrilling than being fired on without effect. <laughs> you see that, a sort of extremely high-risk version of a roller coaster ride. Now, the fascination of war, you know, both for soldiers and civilians, and of, you know, the tactics and, and how, how it's fought and what works. I mean, you're very, you know, properly circumspect about saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try and do a compare and contrast or draw, you know, these are, each of these battles are different, their campaign contexts are different. I'm, you know, presenting you with essentially six interesting battles. But, you know, rules of war, manuals for war, you know, modern day commanders, including yourself, will quote Sun Tzu and Clausewitz. As you say, at Towton, you know, the commanders would have seen the Bible in some respects as a kind of military manual. And there was this Roman rei militaris that they would have looked at. I mean, these obviously continue to be relevant. So are there are there sort of eternal verities of war that can be can be picked out and that are you know, don't change with technology or landscape or any of the rest of it? Well, I think the first thing, you know, it just so happens that yesterday I was at an interesting event at Bletchley Park, which everybody knows is the, the government code and cipher school where we cracked the Enigma codes and uh, had our ultra-intelligence. And if you go back to the Duke of Marlborough, who is arguably 
the greatest general we ever had. And you could argue that because he was tested at every level, as, you know, political right down to the handling of troops on the battlefield. You know, he, he said something which is fundamental, which is that no war can be made without good and timely intelligence. And I think that is the fundamental. You've got to try to reduce the uncertainty as much as possible. You know, that's going to apply in the future, a fortiori, as much as, as at Hastings. And I think that that idea of reducing uncertainty, which in turn reduces the fear factor, will always be important. You know, another thing that I found interesting the other day, just rereading something that Montgomery had, had written, Montgomery was a great student of, of his art, as indeed was Eisenhower. You know, Eisenhower read Clausewitz cover to cover three times during his um, service up to full colonel. Now, you know, there are a lot of osses around today that hadn't read it once, let alone three times. You know, he was determined to get everything out of it that he possibly could and in the end refined it down to a couple of chapters that he, he needed to think, think through in his mind. But Montgomery said when he studied military history, he did so in order to work out what it was in the commander's mind that made him take the decision that he did at the time he took it and what indeed that decision was. And that was the, the only real thing that, that he was interested in. What were these factors? Now, if that is the case, that would suggest that it didn't matter what century the commander was making those decisions, the same input to the decision-making was there. And, you know, I think that that is the proof of the idea that there is this enduring element of the study of warfare. That sort of agility in command seems to come through again and again. I mean, you quote Wellington talking about a harness of ropes, and there's a line you said that, Peter, the coup d'oeil, what's the importance of a coup d'oeil? Everything taken in with the simple glance of the eye that every cavalryman is supposed to possess, it's... Um, do you know the best example of it in many ways is at the Battle of Titan? And... You know, the odds really were against the Yorkists as they, as they marched north, the Lancastrians having withdrawn from London to their, you know, sort of safe area around, around York. It is confusing this, isn't it? The Yorkists being, on the whole, recruited from the south and the Lancastrians, you know, stronghold being York itself. But let's not, let's, let, let's not bother with that. So Edward decides that he's going to take the battle to the to the Lancastrians home ground which is which is north of the Humber he knows he's going to be outnumbered and and fighting on um, not ground of his own choosing he doesn't know where the encounter is going to take place but but he sets himself up and you know it's not a good time of year for campaigning either you know it's it's still the early part of the year and it's cold it's it's wet it's whatever but he sets up his logistics well and they start they start the march north and they get to the crossing points of the River Eyre, which is one of the tributaries of the Humber. And there aren't many crossing points in those Alan days. Alan thank, thank you very much indeed for your Castleford, time. Castleford, which, as the name suggests, is still really a ford with a wooden bridge. And um, the River Eyre, still high at that time, made Castleford not a particularly good crossing point for large numbers. And the other was um, at Ferry Bridge, just north of Pontefract. 
these these crossing points should have been garrisoned by the the Lancastrian troops to try and keep the Yorkists from from crossing. Ferrybridge was, but Castleford not. A man called William Neville, Lord Falkenberg, who was the commander of the Yorkist vanguard and a very good cavalry commander, an experienced fighter on, on the continent, decided that he would take a force to Castleford, try and get across there to find out what was going on on the north bank and to see, in particular, the strength of the defence, the Lancastrian defences, at Ferry Bridge, they'd they'd destroyed the bridge at Ferry Bridge, but the battle was um, was for a crossing there. And he he saw very quickly two things: that first of all, the the Lancastrians at Ferry Bridge had really got no flank protection at all, and he he reckoned he could he could scare them into abandoning the um, the defences there if he attacked them in the flank, and that would have been enough. But he also thought that ah. They'll bolt north. I know this ground. He came from those parts himself. If I divide my force and send one part of it north and then cut in, I can probably cut them off at Dinting Dale. And that's an absolutely brilliant tactical decision. And he, and he achieves his aim. He bolts the guard force at Ferry Bridge. They get into Dinting Dale where he envelops them and destroys the entire... A Lancastrian forward group, the so-called Flower of Craven, a very, very serious loss that leaves the Lancastrians blind. But the following day, Edward tells him to lead the vanguard, principally of archers, to confront the Lancastrians, who are, are drawn up on, on a ridge at Towton, on the high ground. There's no doubt about it, the commanding position. And goodness knows how virtually impossible to, to have taken that that position by uh, attack and they certainly couldn't take them from either flank because they were protected on one flank by um, a river on the, on the other by woods. This would have been a terrible uphill attack. But Falkenberg goes forward with his archers to try and see what can be done. He suddenly realises that the wind has shifted and its strength, he judged, ought to give his archers perhaps 50 yards advantage the wind being behind him and blowing towards the Lancastrian position. So he could get to within just out of range of a retaliatory archery from the Lancastrians while continuing to bombard their line. He did it. He played the Lancastrian line to such an extent that they had no option but either to withdraw, which clearly they weren't going to do, or to come down into the valley, abandon the advantage of the high ground. Their own archery fell short of his archers, which, you know, he, he calculated. And he even said, don't stop, don't pick up those arrows and return them, the normal thing, leave them. They'll actually impede the Lancastrian archers when they come down, you know, rather like, you know, antipersonnel mines. Very, very clever. And that, that's the coup d'etat. And it was that act alone which I think set up that fight to be then an even match between Yorkists and Lancastrians. And with Henry VI nowhere to be seen, Shakespeare has him sitting on a little mound, amusing to himself, although he's actually in York. Edward is there at the front of his forces. And, you know, if I, if I fall, then, then so be it. But, you know, rally to me. And, well, you know, the rest is um, the history of the very complicated... <laughs> 
<laughs> War, wars of the Roses. Um, yes, no, I was struck by one of the dictums you quote, saying that whoever quits their chosen ground first tends to lose the battle. That seems to be a good example of that. To jump forward, this is just one of the book's marmalade droppers, at least for me, is when you're talking about him, Jin, and I, I just didn't want to let this pass without asking you about it. You said that not only were the Americans secretly shipping nuclear missiles to Guam, having said you know, there's no, no question of us using nuclear weapons here, but that MacArthur, you know, the general on the ground, was actually saying not only did he want to have the option of using nuclear weapons, but he wanted them to be under his command as a, if you like, tactical military commander rather than a matter of, of political decision. I mean, that's an extraordinary, you know, historical what-if, isn't it? Well, it is. We're talking about a time when, when really the Americans had a, a monopoly, of, effective monopoly of nuclear weapons and were seeing and developing battlefield nuclear weapons to make up for numbers. If you develop battlefield nuclear weapons, and, and this effectively, what we're talking about, not the sort of intercontinental you know, trident missiles of today, these, these are nuclear bombs you know, dropped from aircraft. If you're developing tactical nuclear weapons for the purpose of destroying portions of an army on the battlefield, then, then logically the use of those weapons, the employment of those weapons, should be delegated to the, to the campaign commander. And what he was doing was agitating for that delegation of command by the commander-in-chief, i.e. the president, Truman. Truman, of course the man responsible for saying yes to dropping the atomic bombs on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, knew that there was more to atomic weapons than, than the battlefield aspect, that this, was a, this would have strategic implications with both the Russians and the Chinese of enormous import. And, you know, the Korean War was a, was a subset of the greater Cold War. And, you know, Truman was rightly concentrating on the Cold War as a whole, rather than MacArthur's um, regional war. Although actually, you see, what MacArthur also wanted to do, in a way, was to say, well, you know, let's bring the Cold War on and win it while we still got the monopoly of this stuff. You know, it'll cost, whatever, but, but let's, let, let's do it. Let's completely put China in its box. And at the same time, having done that, that will, that will put the Russians in their box as well. You know, MacArthur at this time had become, you know, an old-fashioned <laughs> Roman general in the field, you know, a sort of uh, sub-imperial uh, presence. There's a very fine biography of uh, MacArthur, by the way, by William Manchester called um, The American Caesar. That really sums it up. And, of course, Truman, Truman had no option in the end but to sack him. Yeah. Now, speaking of, just finally, we're running low on time, but of putting Russian in the box... Um, <laughs> What's your reading at the moment of the war in Ukraine? Oh, dear. <laughs> what I should say is I'm a historian, not a soothsayer <laughs> or prophet, but that would be a cop-out. The first thing to say is that Putin has clearly failed in his grand strategic object. To what extent he is um, going to be prepared to adjust that object is, is really what's going to, I think, fairly obviously determine the future. If, to him, his project of reunifying the Russia that he sees, 
you know, rather like Germany in the, uh, in the 19th century. If he really sees that as the political object without which there can be no future for him, then we're going to see uh, trouble ahead and quite possibly not just limited to Ukraine. Beyond that, you know, I don't really think it's um, safe to say because from that, answering that question, everything else will will fall out. And I suppose we're in the stage at the moment of hoping that that indeed is not his reading of it and that he's still trying to work out how he adjusts that. I personally hope and think, as, as a matter of fact, that I know they call themselves something different from the KGB now, but I still like to think of them as the KGB because I think that focuses the mindset on, on what it is they're about. The apparatus in Russia, which is there to secure the to secure the state and the understanding of the way the Russian state works, I think that organisation, the battle for it to assert its control will be the interesting one to watch because if I were the head of the KGB, I would be desperately worried that the cohesion of Russia was ultimately being threatened by what's going on. And if your whole raison d'etre is is that, then um, you've got to do something about it. The difficulty is, of course, for them working out what they do with um, with a man who seems to be untouchable. Uh, you know the parallels with parallels with Germany in 1944. I think are apt. Everybody knew that Hitler had to go. Nobody knew how on earth it could be done. Oh, I have to hope for a coup d'état. Alan Nellison, thank you very much indeed for your time.